The battle for NLE supremacy begins tonight in Atlanta, as the Mets' lead in the division is slowly dwindling. I'll preview this big series and what we learn about the Yankees in Boston over the weekend, plus the entire baseball landscape. Novak Djokovic is your men's title winner at Wimbledon, but why won't we see him in Flushing Meadow come late August for the U.S. Open? The Montreal Canadiens get their man at the top of the NHL draft. Or did they? Free agency for the sport begins on Wednesday. I'll cover that. A historic hire in the NFL. James Harden takes a pay cut, and Damian Lillard gives a good reason why he's staying in Portland. Let's start the week off in grand style, as yours truly will deliver the sports goods like no other. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Happy to have you hop along with me on this sports journey as we take inventory on what's going on, what's happening, and what's to come as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to cover here as we get toward the middle of July. The Wimbledon tournament out at the All England Club has concluded. Novak Djokovic is your winner. We'll get into everything surrounding him, Nick Kyrgios, as well as Djokovic not participating as of right this second at the U.S. Open later next month. So I'll share my two cents about that. All the NHL transactions that have taken place, whether it's the draft day on Thursday night, some controversy at the very top with the Montreal Canadiens, and with free agency just a couple days away, we'll highlight who the top free agents are on the NHL landscape. The basketball, James Harden takes a pay cut. Even Damian Lillard gets a pay raise. But the reasons for him staying, I'm sure as a sports fan, you like to hear. So between that, and also the NFL has a, another big hire along the lines of what we saw there at San Jose for the NHL, but this one even bigger and better. And think about this. Two months from today, the NFL season begins. That's all you need to know about how fast summer will fly, and before you know it, we'll be kicking off the 2022 NFL season. But forget about that for now. 
Let's turn our attention to what's happening on the diamond as I lace up my cleats. And let's get right to it. The time has come. Here we go. This is what the Met fan has been waiting for. Going back for a couple of months now. And to think. As early as five and a half weeks ago. Or let's see. If I do my math correctly. I guess it'd be six weeks. Because Memorial Day Monday, which was May 30th. And today would probably be the six week mark since then. Where the Mets had a nine and a half game lead in the division. I believe at one point it cracked double digits. But now as we fast forward to this very moment. And how that lead has shriveled down to just one and a half games and two in the loss. The Mets visit Atlanta for the first time this year. Here already in the middle of July. And you're probably wondering, how many games do the Mets and the Braves have? Because when we look at the schedule, we've seen them play the Marlins plenty here just over the last few weeks. Obviously the Phillies early on in the season. The Nats sprinkled in. They've been out in the West Coast. They've played interleague games. How come we haven't seen the Braves that much? Reason being is that we still have not one, not two, not three, but four more series against them, which would tally up 15 games on the schedule between now and the first week of October. So here's where we are right now with all in its glory, the National League East, and let the battle begin to see who's going to reign supreme and come out with the division flag. And you have an excellent Pitching matchup tonight with both Maxes, Scherzer for the Mets, Freed for the Braves. And before we even get into the series, when we take a look back, not necessarily on the whole season or what has transpired since Memorial Day, but just this past week alone, the Braves, remember, they had that 14-game winning streak in the middle of June, and they've continued to play rock-solid, if not spectacular, baseball since. They also have... A pitcher that we're going to see tomorrow. And Spencer Strider who struck out 12 Cardinals. I believe on Thursday. So we'll get a glimpse of what he's all about. Because the Braves it seems like they pump out these young pitchers. As if they're growing on trees down in Atlanta or in Georgia. Wherever it may be. Whether it's Ian Anderson. Obviously Max Freed. We've seen what Mike Soroka could do. And I'm sure he's going to be on the mend and on the way back. At some point before I would think August. And the Braves have just been phenomenal when you look at how they've started off their season, maybe a little bit of a hangover with the World Series, and now they are clicking on all cylinders, and I'm sure they are waiting, not only the team, but also the fans, knowing that they have the hardware, knowing that they have a significant advantage when it comes to the history of this rivalry, if you want to call it that, and this dates back to the mid to late 90s. And we've seen what the Braves have done to the Mets over the years. And I don't need to break it all down. The House of Horrors at Turner Field. Their former stadium. And it even has transferred up the road Cobb County to the new Truist Park. Formerly SunTrust Park. And it always seems like whenever there's a big spot. Whenever there's money on the line. The Mets seem to wilt when they play the Atlanta Braves. I don't know if it's the uniform. I don't know if it's the stupid tomahawk chop, which I don't know. Have we still heard that here in 2022? Obviously, they should get rid of it. But now that we get to the middle of July, now that we get to the big games, what to expect here? Obviously, it's a toss-up. We know the history, as I mentioned, between the Mets and Braves. And you would think that this series, by far, is bigger for the Mets. I think for... Their psyche, 
I think for even just their confidence, because they did have this big lead, and now that the Braves have a chance to take over the division for the first time all year, because the Mets have pretty much been wire to wire to this point. And even with Scherzer, and then tomorrow, the Mets are going to throw David Peterson, who's been eh, up and down. And then you have Chris Bassett there on Wednesday. So they have two of their top pitchers, minus Taiwan Walker, who had an excellent performance there yesterday, although got a no decision, but the Mets did split a four-game series against the Marlins. But that's the one thing. The Mets, despite their record, 53-33, and and them only losing, what, four series all year or five off the top of my head because they did lose to the Astros twice and then they lost to Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego. And then they split a few others, including the Braves in their only matchup earlier this year. I believe it was in early May. The Mets have not been consistent along the lines of putting together a lengthy winning streak. And it's better off for a Met team to play the way they've been considering that they've won a lot of series. Would you rather have a team that's going to pull off seven, eight wins in a row and then stub their toe to the point where, all right, maybe they lose four or five or maybe they lose five of seven or they lose back-to-back series four of six to where you start to think, oh, doubt is going to start to creep inside your head and maybe as a team, knowing that it's a different cast of characters because we know the players and what they've been able to do so far this year, whether you're Starling Marte, Mark Canna, even Chris Bassett, who has pitched pretty well. But these are guys in a different makeup with obviously the manager and of course the owner who has been Steinbrenner-esque, to say the least. But this is a series that A, you can't get embarrassed. B, you have to win at least one game. But more importantly, if you've been in first place all year and you've been the top dog in the NL East, You must win two of these three games in Atlanta. Not to say that it's going to change the outcome or the complexity of the division as it is. But if you've been the big dog, the team that has pretty much flexed their muscles since day one, leading this division the way they have been, you can't crawl out of Atlanta with one win or meekly walk away And to think the game on Wednesday is going to be a 12-10 quick turnaround from the night before. So when your matchups, as I talked about, Scherzer free tonight, which could be a toss-up. You could think the advantage is going to be to Scherzer, but we saw what Scherzer did in his return to Cincinnati. He pitched phenomenal, six innings, two hits, no walks, 11 strikeouts, and he also got a no decision in which the Mets ended up losing 1-0 to the Reds. And Freed could put up zeros with the best of them. All you got to do is look back to Game 6 of the World Series last year when they clinched. Spencer Strider going up against Dave Peterson. Strider, we understand a bit of an unknown, but based on his last start, can you give him the advantage and think that the Braves are going to be a favorite to win that game? You could argue that. And then Bassett going up against Charlie Morton, where Morton has seemed to Kind of got a season on the tracks after an injury. And now that the Braves, who I think have been waiting for this series, they know what the Mets have done this year. And they know the work that it's taken for them to get themselves in a position where they could say, if we sweep the series, we'll be in first place. 
if we take two out of three, we'll gain a game and we'll be a half game back. And I would think that as much as they'll look at it as just another series, just another game, I'm sure they want to stick it to the Mets here. And not to say that these players or even this organization for that matter are going to think about what is taking place between the Braves and Mets going back to the turn of the century and even before that. But I'm sure that the Braves do know not only are they champions, not only are they battle-tested and also tough and have played in big games, and not just last year, over the last few years. Knowing that the Mets have not traveled down this road, I'm sure they're going to be ready to pounce and take advantage of a Mets team that, I'm not going to say is floundering, but coming out of a week where they barely got two wins against the Reds and had to split a four-game series against the Marlins, who have played pretty well. Not to say that they're world beaters, but they're two under five hundred, and believe it or not, in the middle of July, they're a fringe playoff team, albeit two games under five hundred, and I believe four behind Philadelphia for the wild card, the last spot in the National League. But this is a series that is more important for the Mets by far than it is for the Braves. Because if the Mets take two out of three, all right, great. Maybe there's the expectation that a team that's been in first place all year with their top pitcher going up against, all right, Max Fried, who's arguably their top pitcher right now, and then with Chris Bassett, two-year, three best pitchers, you would think that two wins should be what the Mets could come out with at the end of the series and hopefully move on to Chicago, which is their next destination for four games leading into the All-Star break. And that's not to say for the Braves this isn't an important series because even if the Mets... By some chance, let's say if they sweep and they end up being four and a half games ahead in the division, I don't think the Braves are going to be shaking in their boots either. They may say, oh, they got us, but we still have 12 more matchups and I believe nine in a 10-day period this time next month. I believe that second week of August, the Braves will come to town to play five games against the Mets, including a day-night doubleheader which was originally a four-game series, but remember, they had to make up a game due to that opening week with the lockout. So they'll have five there, and then a week after that, they'll play four in Atlanta. And that's where we're really going to tell how this division's going to shape up. But as for now, it's big because they haven't played in a while. The Braves have come all the way back. They have a chance to take over the NL East, and now... Let's play ball and see how this shakes down. And the best part about it is is that on the podcast come Thursday, I'll be able to break it down whether I'll be angry, frustrated, bitter, or happy, rejoicing, at least for the time being. Because you know my cynical and jaded ass (laughs) when it comes to this baseball team in particular. So looking forward to it. It should be exciting. And we'll see how this all unfolds down in Atlanta over the next three days. As I mentioned on the podcast Thursday, this Yankee-Red Sox series wasn't going to be the end-all, be-all by any stretch. And similar to the Braves and Mets, Yankees have not faced the Red Sox since the opening series at Yankee Stadium this year. So with the Red Sox coming pretty much from the dead at 11-20 and to be where they are right now, and that's not to say that they're going to be a threat in the ALE similar to what the Braves and the Mets, as I just detailed, But it was a good measuring stick to see whether or not if it was going to be 
split as it was, and as we saw, and a great job by the Red Sox because they lost the first two games of this series, and then they bounced back nicely to win the back two. Or even if the Red Sox won three or four, nobody's going to raise an eyebrow. Same if the Red Sox would have swept the series. Yeah, people would say, oh, wow, great job by the Red Sox. But as far as the division goes, it's a foregone conclusion that the Yankees, you might as well just plant the ALE's flag right at the pitcher's mound at Yankee Stadium and just give it to them. Because there's no way they're going to spit the bit, and it'd be shocking if they do, as far as winning a division. But the one thing that I'm going to take away from this series, and I'm not going to go as far as to say it's alarming, but it's something you're going to have to be concerned about, Yankee fans. You're starting pitching. It's not unraveling. It's not falling to pieces. In fact, if you saw the stat yesterday, I believe they're the only team in baseball, and maybe one of a handful, that all five of their starters have pitched in at least 15 games. So when you break down Garrett Cole, Luis Severino, Nestor Cortez, Jordan Montgomery, and Jamison Tyon, those guys have been consistent. And when we look at the record and we look at the entire body of work, they've pitched above and beyond what any Yankee fan, I'm sure even the front office, has ever expected. But now as we come out of this weekend, and not to just base it all on these past four days, but when we see Garrett Cole get staked to a 5 nothing lead and then gives up two home runs to Rafael Devers to the point where the Yankees had to eke out a 6-5 win in the opener, and Garrett Cole, I'm sure the Yankee fan will tell you, they do not put 100% trust in their $36 million a year man because we've seen what he's done in the past, especially in that ballpark. All you got to do is look to the wildcard game last year not making it out of the third inning, and having some spotty starts even in the postseason the year before. We look at Nestor Cortez. Yes, he's an all-star, but you did not like that performance on Friday night, three and two-thirds, four runs, eight hits. I believe he struck out seven, which is fine, but you got to wonder a little bit if the American League or maybe even baseball in a whole starting to catch up to him. Jamison Tyon, who had that excellent start, and I believe is what, nine and two, But still, his last four performances have been awful. Just look at the game last night. He was staked to 2-0, 4-0, and 6-2 leads. And he left the game tied at 6. Jordan Montgomery, serviceable pitcher. If anything, he gave you the best start out of all the starters over the weekend. But with your life on the line, are you going to trust Jordan Montgomery to deliver the goods? And then there's Luis Severino who, as we've seen, has shown flashes of his brilliant past, throws 100, wicked slider, but even Severino, in a big spot, you have to hold your breath. And come October, you're going to need your pitchers to carry the mail. And as we've seen, their hitters in big spots, especially in the postseason, haven't come through either. Now, mind you, It's a long time between now and then, and this is one of the things that you'd have to plant in the back of your head if you're a Yankee fan. Because, as I mentioned earlier, there's not going to be a lot of games the rest of the way. Yes, you're going to face the Red Sox again next weekend. Yes, there's going to be some moments where you're going to have to play up and play the Rays again, which you've dominated. Same for the Blue Jays. The Twins are going to have to come to Yankee Stadium. Are those going to be big games? 
I don't think so. You do have another couple with Houston, which obviously is, I will say you're equal in this regard because what we saw the Astros do to the Yankees a couple weeks back shows that they're going to mean business here in 2022. But without many big games, and once we get to September, when a division lead is probably still going to be double digits, and once they get their pitching aligned for the postseason, and remember, they're going to have a week off between the wild card week or weekend because the season will end on a Wednesday, and then you're going to have the weekend that's going to have the openers between the three, six seeds and four and five in each American and National League. So they're pretty much going to have five or six days before they ramp it up again to get started for divisional series. And all that I just mentioned now may crop up at that time and may not bode well if that's going to be the case, whether it's their pitching, their hitters not responding in big spots. We see Chapman yesterday, and their bullpen is very good. And Clay Holmes also made it to the All-Star team. But just something to, again, you have to keep this in the back of your mind. Yankee fans and baseball fans alike, and I'm not trying to throw cold water or reverse jinx or anything like that because these are things that you're going to have to pay attention to. So keep those receipts come October because we may have to take a look back and see that if the Yankees do falter, Or get out of the gate a little slow once the playoffs begin? Remember this episode, July 11th, 2022. Now to take a look at the baseball landscape, I'll stick with the American League East. And boy, it was a nightmare for both the Rays and Jays over the weekend. Because the Rays who came out of Fenway winning two out of three, including the back two, they go to Cincinnati of all teams. And as I mentioned earlier, the Reds have been feisty. They fought the Mets tooth and nail to the point where they could have won two out of three in that series, and then they swept the Rays at home over the weekend. And then in the Pacific Northwest, you had the Blue Jays go up there and get swept by the Mariners. So both of those teams who are trying to stay within reason of the Red Sox, and it's a close second, third, and fourth place in that division, as they're still separated by a half game, this is going back now a week, but even with that, even with the way the Rays and Jays have played here, they still look up at the Red Sox, but granted, and I take that back, actually the Blue Jays are two and a half back because of the Red Sox winning the back two in Fenway against the Yankees, and then even with the Rays getting swept, they're just a game and a half behind the Red Sox, And next week, we'll take a deep dive into the wild cards. I want to wait for the All-Star break, kind of get to that point to where we could really look at what's going to happen with both wild cards in the American and National League. But the Jays and Rays stumbling here, and you kind of wonder whether or not they're going to right the ship here to at least get into the break with a little bit of momentum and not falter as to extending losing streaks or just bad play or maybe going into the All-Star break, losing 8 of 10 or 7 of 11. So that's something we'll have to keep an eye on here as we get toward the Midsummer Classic. The other big thing to look out for is the Dodgers. And now they look to seem like they're a charging bull. Winning 7 in a row after losing that Sunday tough game to the Padres. And you thought maybe the Padres would have a little bit of momentum to get themselves a little bit closer in the division as their grasp of trying to compete with the Dodgers. Now, you could pretty much say it is lost and out to sea. 
as far as the NL West goes because since then, the Dodgers have now won seven in a row. They have increased their lead to eight in the division, nine in the loss. The Padres, who come off of a split against San Francisco as they lose the back two after winning the first two, and it looked like they could have even put themselves a little distance between them and the Giants, and we know the Giants have been scuffling a little bit as of late. We talked about that going back to last week, where the Giants are currently four and a half back of the Padres, and again, we'll take a look at the wild card next week as far as where the Giants currently stand, and I believe they are the first team behind the Phillies off the top of my head in the wild card chase for the National League. And with the Dodgers now seeming to run away and hide, we know that the Astros have run away and hid. Same for the Yankees. Twins have a four and a half game lead, but it's weird with the schedule because it's only two in the loss. And with the Guardians, a game under 500, they still have quite a few games to make up where the Twins have played 88 games and the Guardians have only played 83. So those five games are big. Because if they do win those five games, I understand the Twins have to lose two. But that's something that will have to keep the Guardians on ice as a team that is still in the mix. And until they make up those games, then we could really get a better look at how that division may play out. White Sox, although they won the back two against the Tigers, but they can't get their season on track. And here we are, just days before the All-Star break. The Brewers... Still have a slight edge, three and a loss, two and a half over the Cardinals in the Central. And the Dodgers play the Cardinals here this upcoming week. We have a few interesting matchups where Boston goes down to Tampa to play the Rays to see if they can get some payback from what happened last week in Fenway. And an interesting week for the Red Sox because then at the back end, they go to Yankee Stadium for three. So, very interesting test for the Red Sox going back to last week. We talked about the two out of three they lost to the Rays, and then the split here against the Yankees, of course. And now they're going to play those same two teams on the road this time. So, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. But when we look at the other teams, we talked about Dodgers-Cardinals, something to look at. Milwaukee-Minnesota, a lot of interleague games here the early part of the week, where it also includes Philly and Toronto, two teams that are wildcard chasers. You have the Mariners coming off that four-game sweep playing in the nation's capital. Give it up for the Orioles. That's a story that's gone under the radar because nobody had even ever thought that the Orioles, with their slow start, and we thought they were going to be easily in a 100-loss team this year. And give it up. Maybe the Adley Rushman promotion jump-started this team to the point where they have now won eight in a row. And you could talk about the teams they beat. Yes, I get it that they just swept the Anaheim Angels pretty much out of their misery, and they've been awful for the last six weeks. But the Orioles are one game under 500. And people could even think that, are they in the mix for a wild card? Considering they're just one under, and they go to Chicago to play the Cubs, a team that they're also dead team walking. Can the Orioles be a part of the AL wild card? I would have to take a pause and pump the brakes on that, at least for right now. And granted that they're two games behind the Blue Jays in the division. But in the grand scheme of things, do you expect the Orioles to be there? I'd say no. But this has been a surge that nobody in their right 
frame of baseball mind and sense would think that the Orioles would now be flirting with 500 and let alone even just a wild card spot. So give it up to them and what they've done and hopefully they can continue their success because the Orioles, pretty much since Buck had left, they've been a team that has been on no one's radar that no one has even come close to paying attention to and understandably and rightfully so. But just knowing that they are a little relevant right now is a good thing for baseball because that's a great baseball town, great tradition and history. We know the teams, we know the players, etc. So kudos to them and what they've done and hopefully they can keep it up here leading into the following week. And that's pretty much what you have for baseball. I'm not going to break down the all-star rosters and snubs and I can't get into that. Maybe I'll touch on that a little bit next week, but the game is a bore. The game has just been, let's face it, it's been atrocious over the years. There hasn't been an exciting game. The first one that comes to mind is the 2008 game at Yankee Stadium, which mind-bogglingly went 15 innings, if you remember, late in the night there in the Bronx 14 years ago. But other than that, these games have just been an absolute bore. So with the Home Run Derby, even the draft is coming up this Sunday, the Futures game. Major League Baseball is trying to make this a big weekend into the early part of the week, which is good for them. Baseball needs all the publicity they could get. So, a week away, All-Star break. We'll see how this final week goes, and obviously highlighted by Mets Braves, as we talked about at the very top. All right, now let me break out my tennis racket and shoes to recap the back end of Wimbledon here. And for starters... The women's side, Elena Rybakina, she was victorious, winning in three sets. She was down in the first set in the championship against a woman from Africa. Tunisia, in fact, and I'm, now I'm going to butcher her name, Anj Jabour. I've tried to say this over the last couple of days, and I'm sure I'm off by a syllable or two. But Jabour, who got out of the gate quick, Winning 6-3, but at that point, that's when Reba Kina took over, and she was able to win 6-2, 6-2, and I know I'm butchering Reba Kina's name. I know you could pronounce it several ways, but she is your women's champ at Wimbledon, and I know there's been a little bit of controversy swirling around her as a player born in Moscow, but she represents Kazakhstan, and she was allowed to play because she wasn't claiming Russia, despite the fact of her being born there. Or Belarus, we know that's another country that, obviously, when we look at players like Daniil Medvedev, who was forbidden to play in this tournament, but with Rybakina, knowing that she did not claim Russia as where she's from, despite that being her native land, coming from Kazakhstan and winning, I get it. People could say, all right, splitting hairs there, or you could say, oh, she shouldn't have participated In the match, but if that's the rule where if she's claiming Kazakhstan and that's where she's lived over the last, whatever, X amount of years, decades, who knows? But, all right, if she found a loophole, if she was able to participate by claiming Kazakhstan, then so be it. I'm not going to go crazy or jump up and down. I know Simona Halep, as I said on Thursday, was, I thought was the favorite to win the whole tournament, not just based on name, but... When we look at the rest of the field, who would have thought that Reba Kina or even Jabor was going to come out on top? I thought it was going to be Halep's tournament to lose. But as she did, she lost in the semifinal 
and now Rebekina is your champ here in 2022 for Wimbledon. And as we turn our attention to the men's, I know a lot was swirling around the collision course between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, and it looked like it was headed that way until Thursday afternoon, of course, after I recorded the podcast, to where Nadal had to withdraw due to the ab injury that he suffered in the prior match to Taylor Fritz. And with Nadal having to withdraw, that meant Nick Kyrgios, who Nadal was going to get ready to match up against, he had an off day on Friday to where he admitted that he had anxiety, was nervous, couldn't get any sleep. And even having that extra time off, which you would think would benefit the player, considering that he's had five grueling matches leading up to that. And with Novak Djokovic taking care of Cam Norrie, even after losing the first set, but then breezing through the next three sets to face off against Kyrgios there in the final yesterday. In that first set, Kyrgios was victorious. And people thought about his big serve and what he was capable of doing against Djokovic and Djokovic and Kyrgios, their matchups, I believe, head-to-head. Not a lot to base it on, but from what I saw, that Kyrgios actually had an advantage lifetime over Djokovic. But from the second set on, just like we saw in his previous match against Nori, that's when Djokovic turned on the Jets and was able to take care of Kyrgios 6-3, 6-4, 7-6. That fourth set was competitive, but then in that tie-breaking set, it was match for Djokovic winning his not only fourth Wimbledon in a row, but seventh overall, 21st Grand Slam in his career, one behind Rafael Nadal. And unfortunately, we weren't able to see Nadal, Djokovic, one more time in that big stage, especially for a championship where Nadal could have extended his lead by three over Djokovic, but now with Djokovic getting that much closer, you got to wonder whether or not Djokovic will be able to match that come the end of next month at the U.S. Open. But then it was revealed that in the post-match interview that Djokovic, who has not been vaccinated, as we all know, doesn't plan on getting vaccinated because of restrictions to enter the country, whether they will ease by then or will be given a medical exemption. But we saw how that went earlier this year at the Australian Open to where Djokovic flew down there was detained and then had to fly out of there a couple of days later because he wasn't given that medical exemption and therefore had to forego the Australian Open. And I'm sure he doesn't want to have to go through that again. So as of right this second, until the states happen to loosen those restrictions and maybe have a chance for Djokovic to come back to get that 22nd Grand Slam title, you're not going to see him at Flushing Meadow later next month. And it's weird because he was going for history last year for the calendar Grand Slam as he won the first three legs and, of course, made it to the U.S. Open. Didn't seem to be any fuss. Didn't seem to be any controversy at that time whether or not he was going to perform. He played and ended up losing in the final to Daniil Medvedev. But I guess this time around, whether Djokovic was in the country prior to that time last summer, maybe after... Wimbledon, but obviously I don't have a track record or knew the whereabouts of Djokovic from the time 
Wimbledon last year to the U.S. Open, but he was able to perform, and it didn't seem to be a problem then. I don't know, unless the restrictions certainly were heightened at some point in the fall, winter, or early spring, but you're not going to see Djokovic there perform at the U.S. Open to see if he can match Rafael Nadal all-time for Grand Slam victories. And as far as Kyrgios, he had a great tournament, his first ever Grand Slam final. Now, mind you, he's going to be part of a trivia question when it's asked who made it to a Grand Slam final without playing in a semifinal. Because, think about it, the next time Kyrgios plays in a Grand Slam semifinal will be his first. Because he wasn't able to do so here against the Dahl, who withdrew. But Kyrgios, with his attitude, the image, the trickery, with the between-the-leg shot in that second set, which I'm sure baffled, and even to the disdain of Novak Djokovic, who lost that point in that second set. But with Kyrgios, you wonder if this is going to springboard him. I'm not going to say to superstardom. But will this put him in a trajectory to where we could take him seriously as being a future champ, as being a guy that we could see in future semifinals and finals? Because as we know, it seems year in and year out, it's either going to be Nadal, Djokovic, sprinkle in Zverev, sprinkle in Medvedev. Who knows if you're going to see Federer again on the tour. So now it's going to be the next guy up. And is Kyrgios going to be that guy? Great run here. But I'll have to believe it when I see it. And that's not a knock on him. That's just what we've seen so far. And granted, again, kudos to him during this run. But U.S. Open, let's see if he's going to carry this momentum from Wimbledon to Flushing Meadow to see if he could be a threat and be a guy that has a long run in him to get himself to a semifinal and even to a U.S. Open final. All right, now let's lace up my skates because the NHL has been front and center over the last few days for those who have kept an eye on or paid attention. And I'll start with the draft because you had some controversy at the very top. And we talked about it a little bit on Thursday to where a lot of people thought, not only just on the mock draft boards, but the consensus was that the number one pick in the NHL draft was going to be the kid Shane Wright out of the OHL. And... With the draft in Montreal for the home crowd to witness. And what do they do? The number one selection was the kid from Slovenia, the left winger, Juraj Slavkowski. I know I just butchered that name. So Slavkowski is your number one pick to a lot of moans and groans. And people wondering what in the hell happened with Wright being selected number one. And as it was, he dropped to number four to Seattle to where... When he got on stage to meet up with the Commissioner Gary Bettman and shaking hands, he gave a death stare to the Canadian brass and the front office by their desk and their telephones, their little camp that's set up off stage there at the Bell Center. And for Wright to do that, granted that he plays out west and they're only going to see Montreal twice a year, but I'm sure those are going to be games he's going to salivate and look at the schedule to see when those two teams will match up. So... If you want some drama for a guy, Shane Wright, who was picked by the Kraken, and I'm sure they could use as many top flight players as possible after their inaugural year in the NHL. But Slavkovsky, let's see what happens there. I know at least there was a little bit 
of a relief, maybe not relief is a little strong word, but there was some jubilation later on when the Canadians did get Kirby Doc from the Blackhawks, which brought a roar from the crowd. I guess maybe that was to mock the number one pick of Slavkovsky, but the Canadians did bounce back by getting Doc in a trade, and the Blackhawks, as I segue there for a second, they were wheeling and dealing over the weekend, whether it was trading Alex DeBrincat to the Ottawa Senators for picks, obviously the situation with Kirby Doc. A lot of people thought that maybe the team would start to blow up, even with their wily, cagey, Stanley Cup champion veterans, Jonathan Taze and Patrick Kane. That still remains to be seen, but as of now, the Blackhawks look like they're in complete rebuild mode, and why not? Because this run with the Blackhawks that started in 2010 with the Stanley Cup in Philadelphia, then with another cup in 2015 against the Boston Bruins and 2015 against Tampa, you could pretty much look at this team, and I know it's tough to trade aging stars and guys that went to war for the organization and won championships, but you have to look at it and say, it's a business, it is time to move on, and if we could get anything for these guys that could help a team that's looking to make it to the next level, uh, New York Islanders, maybe it's time to part with these players who will forever be etched in Blackhawk lore. So it's not as if once they leave, if they do leave, and by them wearing another jersey, that means uh, their Blackhawk career, of course, is going to officially be done, but knowing that they're not going to stay with one team for their entire career, that'll go by the wayside, but that's not news in the world of sports as it has been over the last four or five decades. So they're going to have their numbers raised to the rafters at one day at the United Center. So even if they move on to another team, Blackhawk fans, yes, you may shed a tear, but they'll always be Blackhawks no matter where they go for the remainder of their careers. So between that and then speaking of the Islanders, they made a trade with the Canadians, getting the defenseman Alexander Romanov for their number one pick. And it's ironic because the number one pick that they sent to Montreal, that's the pick that they sent to Chicago to bring in Doc from the Blackhawks. And then you had a bunch of other things go down, whether it's Chris Letang, he's staying in Pittsburgh as he signed a six-year, $36 million deal. Same for Philip Forsberg in Nashville. And the couple of trades that were made, whether it's Vili Husso from St. Louis to Detroit, so now you have a goalie there for the Red Wings. Same for Vitek Vanacek from the Capitals going to the Devils. So you had a lot of little trades there. Another goaltender, Alexander Georgiev from the Rangers to Colorado as they got back three draft picks. So you had a lot of goaltenders on the move here, and that was a good trade, I thought, for the Avalanche, even though Kemper did win them a cup to go along with Pavel Francou, who also contributed to their cup-winning run, but bringing in Georgiev, who a lot of people thought before the meteoric rise of Igor Shosturkin, Georgiev was going to be the guy in net to pretty much be the heir apparent to Henrik Lundqvist. So with all the wheeling and dealing that took place over the weekend, and now just a couple of days away from the free agent period, and here are some of your top names. Evgeny Malkin, P.K. Subban, Claude Giroux. Now those guys have age on them, even Patrice Bergeron. We all know those guys are all-world talents. Cup winners, a lot of hardware brought on to them, whether you're 
Selkie Award winners, such as Patrice Bergeron. And even when you look at a guy like Ryan Kessler, another guy that may be long in the tooth, but if you're looking for one year and maybe getting your team to the promised land, those aforementioned guys could be it. You do have to wonder about wear and tear, and of course injury, as we've seen with Malkin over the years. But I'm sure they could be a big boost to any team, even Phil Kessel. There's another guy that's a free agent and has a long, lengthy NHL career who has a lot of experience and knows about winning Stanley Cups. Then you have the Andre Palazzo of the world, the Nas Kadri, who just won a cup in Colorado. Those are the guys I think will get a lot of attention. You have plenty of others that are on that list, which we'll take a look at once we get to the next podcast on Thursday, because I'm sure some of these guys will sign on the dotted line by then. But those are your top names. I'm sure there's going to be, maybe on the trade front, not as much activity as we saw over the last three or four days. But now we get to that period to where players are going to change addresses, whether they're longtime players in one organization or not. And we'll recap a little bit of that come Thursday as to where these players are going to go. And let's see what the Islanders do because they need goal scoring in the worst way. That's why a guy like Johnny Gaudreau would be big on Long Island because if you bring in a defenseman like Romanov, then let's see them bring a big-time forward who could score goals and could really be a huge factor on a team that did not make the playoffs last year and needs a shot in the arm in the worst way when it comes to goal scoring. So we'll, of course, keep an eye on that. And to quickly round out that top four, because I know you had the defenseman Simon Nemec who the Devils drafted number two, and even though he was the top defenseman, but I guess the Devils thought they're going to go back to their roots to have that defensive style, and by bringing in Nemec, who I know is probably a little bit more of an offensive defenseman, and I'm not giving him as much credit, but they felt instead of going with another center, as we talked about on Thursday, obviously they could have gone Shane Wright, but with Jack Hughes, they figured, let's bring in a defenseman. I thought maybe they'd go with the winger, and who knows if they're thinking had changed with the Canadians drafting Slavkovsky because a lot of people thought that maybe even Slavkovsky would be the number two overall to complement Jack Hughes on a top line. And then they had to scramble around to think who we could draft next. Maybe Nemec was second on their draft board. Maybe he was a guy that was at the very top or close to it. And as it was, they did draft a defenseman. And I believe he's another Slovenian. And then Logan Cooley... The center was drafted by Arizona at number three. Of course, you have Shane Wright at four going to Seattle. And then Cutter Gauthier goes to Philly to round out the top five of your draft. We'll see how these players pan out. Obviously, it's going to take a few years for them to do so. But NHL draft in the books and now free agency on deck. As I mentioned, we will certainly keep our fingers on the pulse with that. All right, a couple of quickies before we say goodbye. I'll start with the NBA, where the Sixers, James Harden, is going to stay in Philadelphia. Terms were undisclosed, but he did take a $15 million pay cut, probably to bring in the likes of a guy like P.J. Tucker, who is not officially signed as of yet, but all the rumblings has Tucker going to Philadelphia, I believe, on a three-year deal, somewhere in the vicinity of 33 to $36 million. And with... Harden signing for two years and an opt-out. Again, not knowing what the terms are. Harden is going to be on this team. We know the Sixers always going to have a lot of pressure on them. I would think that Harden is in the gym right now. Not only with the cardio, 
but also getting himself up to speed to try to be the player that he once was, especially during his days with the Rockets. I know that's a lot of time between now and then, but it's something to just think about as we get through the summer and get toward training camps at the beginning of the fall and see how Harden's going to look come media day, whether he's going to be svelte or he's going to be somewhere in between. I would think he's going to not look the way he has with being soft in the middle and trying to rely just on his natural talent to put up 30, 9, and 8 every night. Obviously, that's not going to be the case as he's, I believe, what, 33 years of age? So you would think Harden is working in the gym, not only on his conditioning, but of course on his game overall. And then you have Damian Lillard, who signed a two-year extension with the team. And mind you, he already signed a max extension two years prior. But with him getting two years, $120 million, so in essence, when you tally it all up, it's a five-year deal worth close to $270 million. Now, the great thing about this is that he wanted to stay in Portland. He felt that if he were to go elsewhere, that it wouldn't be as fulfilling if he did that. And kudos to him, because we know that with the player empowerment movement that has taken place for the last decade plus, and all the Supermax teams and all the super teams, I should say, I'm thinking of Supermax deals, all the super teams that have been built going back to, you want to say, even the Celtic teams between Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce. But remember, Allen and Garnett were trades. They weren't strictly on free agent signings, but with LeBron, Chris Bosh teaming up with D. Wade, whether it's, uh, we could go down the list, but you know where I'm coming from when it comes to that. But it's commendable to think that Lillard wanted to stay with the Trailblazers to kind of go through this tough period and see this whole thing through to the point where if he does win a title, it'll be that much more rewarding and good for him. But the sad thing is, is that the Blazers are nowhere near a championship team or even compared to the likes of Golden State coming off of a championship, Phoenix, who won 64 games, and let's see if Kevin Durant goes there, the Nuggets, who will have Jamal Murray back to go along with the MVP of the league, and then who knows what's going to happen with the LA teams, Clippers, even with John Wall on their roster, and the Laker roster still to be molded with LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, so... It's going to be tough sledding for the Blazers, but I got to give it up for Lillard being loyal, sticking in the Pacific Northwest to see this thing through, and let's see how that plays out because, like I said, a championship in their future? I don't think so. And then lastly, another historic hire in the world of sports. We talked about Mike Greer, the GM of the San Jose Sharks in hockey, where he's the first black GM. Well, now... The Raiders hire Sandra Douglas Morgan to be the first black president. That's right, president. Not GM, not vice president, but president of the Raiders. She had served as a chairwoman and executive director of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. And with that experience doing that and with this hire, who knows what that's going to lead to down the road as far as not only just the people of color, But now women having a position. And we've seen this in baseball with the Marlins hiring Kim Ng, the GM of the Miami Marlins, and trying to build that team to be competitive, as we talked about earlier in the podcast. 
But even with Ng and that historic hire as a GM, now you have a president. I wish the best for Sandra Douglas Morgan. I hope it all pans out. We know that the Raiders have been dysfunctional for God knows how long. They haven't been to a Super Bowl in 20 years. They've made the playoffs here and there. Tough playoff loss in Cincinnati, as we know, this past playoff season. But with Sandra Morgan at the helm, let's see what she brings. And hopefully, she'll do not only good, but I'm sure right, by a Raider team that's looking to take it to the next step, considering what they've done here this offseason with their moves. The big one, of course, being Devontae Adams reuniting him with his college quarterback, Derek Carr, among others. So, congratulations to her. And again, let's see if we see similar moves like that, not only just in the NFL, but also in all sports. Not only just for women, but of course, people of color as well. And that'll do it. Another episode in the books. As always, people, I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart just for you to take in the time out of your busy schedule, your busy day, to get your fill on everything that's happening in the world of sports. And just like I mentioned at the very top of this podcast, if you haven't done so, Please, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Throw me a few stars. Write a review. It's just to increase the visibility of this podcast as I try to get the word out. I'm in one-man operation, independent. It's not like I have a team. It's not like I have a board that I look to to have advertising, marketing, all the different facets to run this thing. Doing my best here behind the scenes. So with your contribution, and trust me, your participation and contribution does not go unnoticed, or is not taken for granted. So if you can do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or suggestions, you could do so at the following social media accounts, which is TikTok, the J Reels Podcast, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One Just a Number, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. I know in the previous podcast, I did mention that I was going to put up a post, but I didn't want to do so. Upon further thinking, I wanted to put forth a thoughtful piece. I didn't want to just type up something and put it up there just for the sake of it. So my apologies for those who went to my Patreon page and were expecting a post from yours truly. I will do so in the coming days. I've actually started to put up a post. I get it. I'm not trying to put up a declaration of independence or anything that's going to be mind-boggling. But again, I want it to be thoughtful. I want to be just meticulous when it comes to this. I just didn't want to put up something just to put it up. So... I appreciate your understanding and patience when it comes to that because whatever you want to put forth of your hard-earned cash, I plan to take this platform to make it exclusive for the guys and gals who do sign up, who want to put their hard-earned money and trust in yours truly to put forth two podcasts a week to deliver the goods when it comes to everything that's happening in the world of sports, when it comes to the upkeep of the website, when it comes to the equipment, when it comes to anything and everything that happens with what I say into this microphone going through your earbuds or speakers because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do. This is in the blood, in the DNA, 
And if you couldn't tell over the last 55 minutes, then I guess I got to step my game up, but I'm not going anywhere. Because this is what I love to discuss, to get into anything and everything, thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on all that's happening in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>